Italy has a new unity government headed by the former European Central Bank chief Mario Draghi. The economist Tim Hartford explains why what we know as wishful thinking could be at the heart of the rise of disinformation in many parts of the world. And award season gets underway as the Golden Globe nominations are announced in Hollywood. We'll ask whether a most unusual year for TV and film has been reflected in the shortlists this year. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 3rd of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and with us today to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's big news stories are Monocle's culture editor Chiara Ramella and our news editor Chris Chermak. Chris, Chiara, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Chiara, it feels as though you've been gracing the airwaves on Monocle 24 pretty much all day today. You are among the many hats you wear for us here at Monocle, our commentator on Italian affairs, and it has been a busy day for you. We'll discuss this more in a moment, I, I'm sure, but you haven't had much rest today, it seems to me. Yes, I, I, it feels like with these political crises in Italy, um, I've never really stopped being that voice for, for, for Monocle over the past few weeks to the point that Chris has had to reject a couple of opinion pieces for me because I just want for the political crisis to be unpacked in all sorts of ways. Um, but I think today is really the culmination of, of this you know long and winding road that we've had to tread for the past few weeks. And I'm always happy to discuss it with Chris here on a Wednesday. He's the perfect interlocutor. And Chris, I guess there's never really a sort of slow day for a, for a news editor. How's the week shaping up for you so far? Well, it's kind of like putting on a different hat at this point. Uh, we will be talking about Italy and uh, me reflecting back on my time as a central banking reporter. So, uh, yes, in terms of the news, it never stops. But as we discussed last week, the, as the US has, has died down a little bit in terms of dominating the headlines the way it was at the start of the year, it feels like Europe is is kind of taking taking the fore again. Vaccine crises and Italian political crises. It's it's right back to 2012. Well, we'll hope to make sense of some of it, at least over the next 25 minutes or so. Chiara Romella and Chris Chermak, thank you very much to the two of you for being with us today. Well, as Chris mentioned there, we begin today in Italy, where Mario Draghi, the former chief of the European Central Bank, has been invited by Italy's president, Sergio Mattarella, to form a unity government following the collapse of the coalition talks among Italy's political parties late last night in Rome. The political tumult in Italy was sparked by the resignation of its Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, last week. And a little earlier today, our Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, gave us this rundown of how events unfolded in Rome after those coalition talks broke down late yesterday evening. Now, after that all happened, the President Mattarella addressed TV cameras and said basically there were two options. One would be to go to early elections. That would be two years early because they're not scheduled till 2023. Or he could call together this technocrat government, basically an institutional government made up of non politicians. Now, the reason he said he's going to do this is because 
Italy is really in too difficult a situation. There's a health crisis, an economic crisis, a financial crisis. He he basically listed a host of reasons why it would be a bad decision to call early elections. The fact that the government wouldn't be executing its full functions during campaigning. The fact that everyone would be out on the streets trying to win votes. Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor-at-large there, speaking to us from Milan a little earlier today. Uh, Chiara, as Ed uh, described there, Italy's president has effectively removed the politics from Italy's government by instituting the so-called technocratic government. How remarkable, to give a bit of a longer view on this, a, a move is this in the recent history of Italian politics? And what do you foresee the political implications, I suppose, of this move might be in Italy in the months to come? Well, Thomas, I think it's an interesting way to put it that President Mattarella has removed the politics from this because, yes, he is proposing a technocrat, but I think his decision is a very shrewd political move, actually. Uh, You know, we've talked on a monocle minute about the importance of the role of Mattarella in all of this. You know, we focused a lot about the squabbles um, between the different parties and former prime ministers and future prime ministers and what's going to be. But actually, at the centre of it all is President Mattarella, who has made a very, very intelligent move in completely, you know, upending everybody's expectations and bringing Mario Draghi to the table. This is a name that a lot of parties will find difficult to say no to, but that certain parties will feel almost impossible to approve. And in order to understand that, you have to know a little bit about the background of the last, I guess, 10 years of Italian politics, really. It is a long game. The the relevance of this moment actually goes back almost a decade. And it goes back to Mario Monti's government in 2011, the Italian history of technocratic governments and how the population feels about them. It goes back to the fact that it's virtually the rise of the technocratic government supported by establishment parties, you know, of centre-left and centre-right that essentially buoyed the, you know, e- extreme success of populist movements like the Movement Five Stars. You know, the Movement Five Stars was born out of dissatisfaction with the establishment. And that establishment is the PD, the establishment is, you know, Berlusconi's party, and it is the technocrats, the people coming from Europe, you know, who are immediately resonate with this idea of, you know, austerity and finance and banks, which doesn't actually go down very well down the throat of Italians that were really, really badly scarred by the financial crisis. So I think when you look at the last decade of Italian politics, you look at a real series of governments that haven't lasted very long. And remarkably, a lot of them governments that weren't directly elected by the people. You know, we've had technocratic governments, we've had really, you know, we've had coalition governments where, you know, the majority was really, really tight, where coalition talks went on for ages. We've had, you know, internal betrayals and, you know, people come to the fore even though they hadn't really been selected by a, a popular vote. So I think what this might do for the overall mood of of the population is bring back all those feelings of just simply not really having a political choice in all of this. And it may actually give more fire to all of those populist parties that made their fortune out of the situation like this in the past. And if we do come to early elections, which is not yet a possibility that is completely off the cards, 
it may actually pay in favour in on for those populist parties which we saw in a coalition government a couple of years ago, or three years ago now, but that never expressed a proper, I guess, prime minister or political prime minister. Let's remember that Giuseppe Conte, much as we think about it now as, you know, a properly political figure, he was also a lawyer by profession who was chosen by the Moving Five Stars as a, a relatively neutral name that would put together a coalition between Moving Five Stars and Lega. But we haven't really had, you know, a party leader <laughs> as a prime minister in quite a long time. And Chris, you mentioned at the top of the programme your previous journalistic life in which you covered Mario Draghi during his time at the helm of the ECB, the the European Central Bank. Why do you think he was the choice to head this new government in Italy? Chiara described him there as a name that would be pretty hard to refuse uh, on on the face of it for many political operators in Italy. Well, it's interesting listening to Chiara there because uh, I think Mario Draghi is, on the one sense, a technocrat, but he also always, uh, at least in his time at the ECB, he had, you know, this this calm in in the way that he spoke. He had a charisma, uh, I would argue, at the time. And at the same time, he also was very decisive, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of the actions that he took. And he was also finally a, a diplomat in many ways because he had also within the ECB had to wrangle all of these different central bankers who did in some ways oppose what he was doing, particularly the Germans, but also northern central bankers, and sort of try to keep all these different groups on side. So that's all a long way of saying, I think, that he is, you know, a man for a crisis. He has done this before, and so... On the one hand, he's a technocrat and has, has been, you know, in central banking for, for much of his life. But on the other hand, you know, he is an ideal person to play this role of a unifying politician um, who, who kind of stands above, uh, above the parties and tries to get them to agree to, to simply get along, um, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, in a moment like this in order to stave off elections at least for a moment in time. Just to add one point to that, I think let's just also remember that, uh, yes, Mario Draghi is a very good candidate for the job and an appropriate one for the job. And in fact, there was speculation in Italy for a long time as to whether he was going to be called in for any kind of really high institutional office. Not many people expected him as a prime minister, but there was speculation that something big was coming for him. But let's remember that the parties still have to have their say. You know, this 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 whole situation is not over and we need to see whether he will find, you know, confidence and a relative or not majority in the chambers um, of parliament uh, before we can really consider the situation concluded. Well, next here on the late edition, it's something that most of us have likely indulged in since the pandemic began. Wishful thinking, that yearning for something, be it the lifting of a lockdown, a victory for a favoured sports team or an election to go a certain way. That desire for a particular reality to unfold, despite the odds of that happening being stacked against it. Well, Tim Harford is an economist and a senior columnist at the Financial Times. And in his new book, how to make the world add up he explains the idea of wishful thinking or motivated reasoning to give it its official term and he spoke to us on the globalist today 
Motivated reasoning is consciously or subconsciously, and it is often subconscious, working through the facts with the aim of reaching a particular conclusion. So you support a sports team. Isn't it strange that you always think, no matter how many games they play, that the referee is biased against your team? You support a politician, and of course you want to reject any idea that the politician is corrupt or creepy or a liar. They, of course, have excellent judgment in all things. And one of the examples of this that really fascinates me is goes back to the 1930s, where an art forger managed to fool the world's leading expert in paintings, in Dutch interiors in particular, with a really crude forgery, again, purely because he took advantage of this wishful thinking. So the lesson I draw is, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how expert you are, or how many facts you have, if you really, really want to believe something, we're all capable of convincing ourselves of things that aren't true. Tim Harford there, the author of How to Make the World Add Up, speaking to The Globalist a little earlier today. Kiara, I think I'd often thought of the idea of wishful thinking as being a slightly benign thing, I suppose, dreaming of something better, perhaps, in a way that sort of just lived and died as a dream. But it's interesting, isn't it, to hear the argument that Tim lays out in, in his book and laid out for us on The Globalist today, that it isn't often benign at all and actually can have quite a tangible impact on how we interact and behave towards the world around us. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, Hartford makes a point in the story itself and book, I guess, that it is for this kind of idea that we end up perhaps not really believing that the result of an election isn't quite true. And we've seen the devastating effects that something like that has had. But I think to move that a little bit further and to look, at, I guess, on even just the effects that this can have on media... You know, Chris made a really compelling argument in um, the minute recently on an opinion talking about how this return to normality in U.S. media or supposed return to normality in U.S. media um, is often aligns with a benign, I guess, attitude towards Joe Biden's actions. And it, it it's remarkable that because perhaps we look at things through a liberal lens and whether the actions of Joe Biden be kind of good policies or bad policies, um, we are, I guess, conditioned to look through a media lens that will give us confirmation to what we want and what we expect out of things. And I think to a certain extent, media has always done this. But in the last few years, I think this tendency has really been exaggerated. And right now, interestingly, it is often those that consume the most media that will go back to always the same sources of media. And so they will consume an enormous amount, but just from the same sources that just confirm their existing biases. And I don't think that that's ultimately what a functioning democratic society needs and a functioning media landscape also needs where you just got competing, uh, you know, competing audiences and competing op- opinions all the time. I think, you know, Chris also did a really interesting interview in the upcoming issue of the magazine, which I encourage, you know, listeners to pick up and I guess read more about. But there's an initiative that began in Germany called Deutschland spricht, then became, you know, a, a, a the continent-wide initiative that pairs people who have very different opinions from 
one another to have a conversation about it and perhaps have an argument about it too. But it's this idea of being confronted with something that is not your familiar territory because unfortunately we tend to immediately reject other people's opinions if they don't resonate emotionally with us. So I think it's really important that we kind of train ourselves to go back to a point where we are able to accept that from other people too. I'd go one step further uh, from what what Chiara was talking about as well, and that's uh, one of the challenges really when it comes to um, the the bubbles that we live in that, that Chiara was talking about there as well is it's not just um, from studies that we only look at media, say, that we agree with, that we only read the media that we agree with. It gets a bit more tricky because actually what happens with, or what happens with motivated reasoning often, and you'll see this particularly in the U.S. to relate it to the U.S. elections, is that when you read something you disagree with, even if it's factual, your brain is going to work a lot harder to disprove that then your brain will work to disprove something that you already agree with to begin with. So that's where the problem becomes as well. I, you know, I speak to many people, I've spoken to many people in, in the U.S., voters, when I've tried to have these kinds of arguments or debates over facts. That's really often where the problem lies. It's not that, uh, say, a conservative, uh, you know, to take that example, will not be watching uh, a CNN or reading the New York Times or the Washington Post. It's that they are far less likely to, uh, or they're, they're going to put much more effort into disproving what the Washington Post is saying than they are going to put the effort into disproving what their chosen media is saying. So in that sense, the work comes in both directions, if you will, that you not only have to read media you disagree with, but you also have to challenge the media that you do agree with. You have to treat them, you know, t t treat them with a grain of salt as well, whichever direction, whether you're liberal-leaning or conservative-leaning. Um, that's really where the challenge is. And, and the other challenge that I would mention for the U.S., you know, I did an interview with uh, one of my favorite sort of uh, uh, psychologists, social psychologists in this, which ran on The Globalist last week, uh, a guy called Jonathan Haidt, um, wrote an excellent book called The Righteous Mind that really went into why we disagree about politics and religion. And the way he describes it, he talks a lot about emotion as well in terms of uh, motivated reasoning. And he, his classic description in this book was imagining a rider and an elephant. And our emotions, if you will, are the elephant and we're the tiny rider on top of that elephant that is trying to direct it in some different way. But the elephant is really going to go wherever it wants to go. And it's going to take you a while to try and turn it in some other direction. And you really have to put in that effort as a rider to turn in another direction in order to... Uh, you know, in order to change your thinking on a topic. So when it comes to something like the elections, to put it simply, you know, look at what happened uh, with Donald Trump, arguably, and um, his argument that the elections were fraudulent. For those people that believe in Donald Trump, it was very easy to believe that. They wanted to believe it in the first place. You want to believe that there was fraud and that your candidate won. If somebody presents you with that argument, 
you will more readily believe it um, than you will the opposite simply because it's something that you want to be true. You gain happiness from that fact that you think it is true. And that's really where the challenge comes. And then, of course, you have, as we, as, you, as Kara talked about, so many media sources, for that matter, that will confirm or so many different groups that are willing to confirm the bias that you have that you can point to. So it is very, very difficult to change someone's mind as a result of that, uh, it does help to have people of opposing views talk to each other, put yourself in those kinds of situations as much as you can, but really also consider the way that your mind thinks about these things and try to change that as well. Well, finally, here on the late edition, there will be plenty of wishful thinking, I'd imagine, among the nominees for this year's Golden Globes, which were announced a little earlier today by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Uh, Kiara, as our culture editor, run us through quickly, if you could, some of the nominations that have caught your eye that were announced a little earlier today. Well, I think the main top line news that's coming out of the uh, nominations is this fact that for, I guess, the first time ever, three women are actually running in the Best Director category. Uh, I mean, that's compared to five women having you know, been nominated for the previous 77 years. So you do understand why this is a matter of quite some relevance. Um, so that is obviously really great news. In particular, Regina King, who's nominated for One Night in Miami, uh, is actually the second ever black woman to be nominated in the category. So again quite a damning, you know, a result there. Um, all the same, I think what's really most striking about the nominations here, we've got, you know, for the best motion picture drama, which I guess is the king of categories, you've got The Father, Mank, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, The Trial of Chicago 7. What's most interesting about all of the different categories that we're looking at right now is that that merging of Netflix into cinematic life has well and truly happened. You know, up to a couple of years ago, we were here discussing whether Netflix films should even be accepted at the Oscars at all. And we had endless conversations as to whether Roma was good enough to be considered for an Oscar. And now look at these nominations now. I mean, I'd, I'd really challenge you to find things on uh, categories in here that don't at least have some Netflix in it. In fact, most of it has got some of it in it. And also, I guess, because the Golden Globes do feature both cinema and TV, that's even more true. But interestingly, I would argue, it's kind of harder to draw the line between the two at the moment because do you categorise films that first appeared on Netflix? The likes of Mank, that's actually leading with six nominations overall. You know, do you characterise it as a proper cinema film considering that hardly anybody has actually seen it on the big screen um it's really quite remarkable i think you know there are many of these titles that i've had on my netflix list for ages and when you're scrolling through your netflix list you really think what format is this in is this a two hour single feature or is it a limited series of four episodes or is it perhaps a 12 episode series all of these distinctions just tend to matter less and less and I think these nominations really reveal and, and explain that for us to, just all to see. I would highlight one personal favourite that is missing from this group, and that is the uh, BBC uh, comedy drama Staged uh, with David Tennant and Michael Sheen, which for me really uh, captured um, in an excellent way 
the mood of the last year of 2020. This was a, a small drama. Each episode was only, you know, 15 minutes long. Um, and it was sort of a, you know, for those who don't know it, I recommend you you watch it if you can. It's a sort of comedy drama about the pandemic with these two actors discussing their thoughts and feelings um, and struggles with the pandemic as they're going through it. But in a, in a way that is not hard to watch, it, you know, is actually quite fun and, and really quite cathartic. Um, and so for me, I would, I would highlight that one as one that I thought is a bit of a shame that it, it, it is not in these categories. Perhaps that's because it's in a category of its own. There are only 15-minute episodes, and, uh, and I believe there were only six episodes in the first series and then eight episodes in the second series, so it was quite small. But there should be some room for that one as well. Well, Chris Chermak and Chiara Rumella, I'm delighted to say that you too have been nominated for the Late Edition Awards here. The category is Outstanding Contribution by a News Panellist to a Wednesday Night Radio News Discussion Programme. It's going to be quite the contest, I'm sure. Aww. Thank you very much to the two of you, as always, for being with us on the programme today. A big thank you too to Sam Impey. I'm sure we can give a statuette of some kind to her too. She edited today's programme in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>